Bibles with you, I ask that you would turn to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to pick up where I left off last time in Philippians chapter 4 with verse 5. In honor of hearing God's word proclaimed, or read rather. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 5, going down through verse 9. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go before the Lord in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we have the privilege to open your word this evening. We thank you that you have blessed us with it in our own language. And we pray, Father, that you would be with us now, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Help us to understand your word in the way that you intended it. And we give thanks to you, Father, for all that you do and all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, last time we began Philippians chapter 4, which has several general exhortations. And the last time I preached a sermon uh, entitled Exhortation to Harmony and Joy, uh, Paul encouraged two ladies there up in the earlier verses named Synecdoche and Euodia to agree in the Lord since they had had some sort of disagreement. And then in verse 4, Paul urged the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And, of course, we should rejoice in the Lord. Christians should have more joy than anybody in the Lord because the Lord has done so much for us. Providentially, he governs our lives and blesses us with good things to enjoy. And, of course, more important than that, he's given us salvation, that we not only have good things now to enjoy, but we have eternity to enjoy. So there ought to be a lot of joy in our lives. And I always tell people that, you know, that's the reason I like to laugh is because laughter is an expression of that joy. So when I come to church, I enjoy myself. I try to have something to uh, laugh about. Don't want it to be frivolous, but I do want it to be enjoyable. And so Paul continues this week with what one author called an exhortation to mental soundness, and I've sort of borrowed his title because I couldn't come up with anything better. Uh, I'm not going to psychoanalyze you. This means mental soundness in the way that we, uh, the attitudes that we look upon life with, as well as the attitudes that we try to instill in other people by our behavior. And so uh, we're supposed to think right about the circumstances that we face. And in this sermon, we will see the exhortations are characterized by very four simple verbs, okay? If you're taking notes, you want to write these down. There's four verbs in your outline. They are making, restraining, obtaining, and meditating upon. Okay, let me say that again in case you missed them. Making and restraining, 
obtaining and meditating upon, which I'll explain as we progress. And so it points first to the command in verse 5 to let or make our reasonableness be known to everybody. Now, the SV uses the English word here, reasonable, where other translations use different words. And they all use different words. Hardly any two of them use the same adjective to describe what Paul tells us to be. The New American Standard says we're to have a forbearing spirit. The NIV and the New King James translates this word as gentleness. And the King James says moderation. And so which one is it? I mean, which one is these the correct one? You know, let's simplify it. I'm a simple guy. I, I can only keep up with one word at a time. And so how am I to understand the Lord's command to us to, uh, on this passage? Well, in most places in the New Testament, this Greek word in the original language is translated in the English Standard Version, which I am preaching out of, as gentle or gentleness. For example, this is one of the qualifications for an overseer or an elder in God's church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, an overseer is not to be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. There's that word there again, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. It's also considered part of the wise mentality of James chapter 3, verse 17, where James says there, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, uh, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. In fact, the only place in the English Standard Version where this Greek word is not translated gentle is in this passage in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, which is our text for the night, and it does so. Let your reasonableness uh, be apparent to everybody. So what are we supposed to understand about this word? Well, Gerald Hawthorne, whose uh, commentary on Philippians uh, I leaned on very heavily for all of the sermons that I did on the Philippians, he has this to say. This word is, quote, one of the truly great words that is almost untranslatable, meaning translatable into English, Related to it is reasonable. There's that word in the English Standard Version. It radiates the positive ideas of magnanimity or sweet reasonableness. Aristotle contrasted it with strict justice. For him, it meant a generous treatment of others, which, while demanding equity, does not insist on the letter of the law. Willing to admit limitations, it is prepared to make allowances so that justice does not injure. It is a quality, therefore, that keeps one from insisting on his full rights where rigidity would be harsh. Now, if this is a lot of words and I've lost you, listen to this last sentence, okay? He further says, thus this word is that considerate courtesy and respect of the integrity of others which prompts a person not to be forever standing on his rights. And so reasonable is probably the best one word in English that we could come up with here, and I think that the English Standard Version is right, uh, realizing that all these other words uh, in these other translations that I named are probably also included in the same idea. So genitalist uh, forbearing spirit, moderation are all appropriate for this word. 
And we are to let this quality be known to everybody. We're supposed to make known our reasonableness to other people. David, did you know I was a very reasonable person? We don't normally do things like that. When it says make known our reasonableness to other people, we're not supposed to go around bragging because the Bible says in other places that we're supposed to be humble, let our humility govern our lives. And so when it says to make known our reasonableness to other people or let our reasonableness be known. Our behavior should indicate that we are reasonable people, that we are respectful people to other people. And so what does this outworking mean in our lives? Well, we should be gentle and therefore not argumentative and certainly not violent. We should be fair and considerate and not harsh or critical or denunciatory or insulting. We should be honest and even accepting criticism from others. Magnanimity is the word that describes that particular attribute. Accepting responsibility and guilt when it's warranted. So we are to make known our reasonableness to everyone in these ways. And the reason that we are supposed to, according to verse 5, is that the Lord is at hand. Now, this could mean a couple of things. It could mean that the Lord is nearby to help if we need him to guide us into a reasonable spirit. Or it could also mean that the Lord's second coming is not far away, and I think that's probably closer to the meeting. So we should be unconcerned if we're uh, experiencing verbal abuse by other people. And that's probably one of the reasons that Paul said to the Philippians, let your reasonable spirit uh, be made known to others, because the Philippians were experiencing persecution. Back in chapter 1, we talked about that. And so they're supposed to be sort of unflappable. You know, they just, you know, they don't freak out when somebody criticizes them, that they're a calm, collected person. And, you know, it's like when one of the Roman governors said to Paul when he was talking about the things of Christ's schism, he suddenly jumped up and said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Paul didn't say, well, you stupid idiot, I'm not out of my mind. He said, he said, no, I speak words of sober truth. I think it was Festus that he was in front of. It may have been Felix. I'm not sure. It's in the book of Acts. Go look at it. Uh, anyway, so we're supposed to be calm people. We don't overreact to situations. We don't get, we might get insulted, but we don't overreact when we get insulted and respond in anger and so on, like I did not too many uh, days ago. And so probably this means both that the Lord is nearby and not long from consummating his purposes for redemption, so he may come to help us, and any conflict that we might have may be short-lived. Well, the next part of mental soundness that we are to have is in verse 6, where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. Paul, at this point, is propagating the very sort of thing that the Lord Jesus had preached in the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, excuse me, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. So fear of the future is the emotionally crippling condition of the soul, which obviously the Lord Jesus knows about, and he doesn't want us to ruin our lives with anxiety. By the way, am I speaking at the right volume? I've, I've got an ear infection, so I don't know how loud I sound. I see. Okay. All right. Okay. 
but this command reminds us that we should not be uh, anxious uh, because there's usually nothing that we can do about what's going to happen in the future. Of course, we should do what we can do. But we can't do things like make the stock market go up. Uh, you know, me and Steve Thacker are concerned about that because I'm an old guy and I depend on my retirement savings and the stock market's going down. And so I get anxious and I wring my hands about it. Well, I can't do anything about that. Now, there are some things I can do about it. I can be a wise advisor. I can go to a person like Steve and get good counsel and learn from his experience and his uh, knowledge of the history of the stock market and things like that. I also can't control the weather. And so, you know, I'm going to get married here in a few weeks. And boy, I hope that we're going to have good weather. I can't control the weather. So the Lord would indicate to us, do what you can. Do what you can about your circumstances and leave the rest of that to him because you can't do so. It demonstrates a lack of trust that God has a good plan for our lives because the Lord controls what lies ahead of us. And he has promised that he works all things together for our good. That's that famous verse that everybody knows in the Bible, Romans 8:28, And we know that for those who are called, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The problem is we know that verse and we don't believe it sometimes, you know, because we suspect God's going to lead us into something we don't want to. And I know, I know that too. I mean, I don't like unpleasant things as well, but we know that it's for our good and therefore we can accept it. And so instead, we should be like the excellent woman in Proverbs chapter 31. You know, you talk about what is a woman supposed to be. Well, that passage, the last half of Proverbs 31 talks about uh, a God-honoring, God-fearing woman. And one of the qualities that she has in verse 25 is strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Well, how in the world can she do that? How can she laugh at the time to come? Is she some sort of frivolous person that, you know, just case rah, what will be will be, and it doesn't really matter? No, the reason is because she trusts the Lord. She knows the Lord. She knows that the Lord has control of her circumstances and her life, and she knows that the Lord is a good God and that he loves her, and he's not going to do anything to her that is not good for her. Now, there's not any reason that that should only characterize a woman because a man has anxiety too, just like a woman may have anxiety. And so we should be excellent men as well, laughing at the future, looking towards the future, not dreading the future, knowing that God has good things for us and that he's a good God and we should trust in him. So naturally, the solution to anxiety is that in everything by prayers, supplications or petitions, if your translation says that, and requests with thanksgiving should make our desires uh, known to God. And so what's the difference between prayers and supplications and requests? Well, according to William Hendrickson, he says, quote, prayer is any sort of reverent address directed to God. And about supplications, he further says, by this is meant the humble cry for the fulfillment of needs that are keenly felt. And so prayer is just a simple request, and supplication is a more emotionally intensified request. I mean, you know, you really, you really need God's help, and your voice gets a little bit louder with a supplication. 
And requests are simply a summary of the content of the terms prayer and supplication. Prayer and supplication are requests. And Paul says that we should not be anxious for anything that includes our possessions, jobs, relationships, families, etc. Nothing in our lives is outside of God's control or generally outside of God's plan for our lives. And so one of the things that can make us itching, make us anxious is that we get bad teaching at church. And I know that because I got some bad teaching at church. Now, one of the early churches that I was in on this says that God has a secret plan for your life, and I agree with that today, And but you have to know what that secret plan is. And if you don't, you are out of the will of God. Well, just think what that does to you emotionally, because now you're always fretting if you're a person like me who tends to be a little on the insecure side. You're always fretting, well, maybe I'm outside God's will. And I was going through a trial. I said, well, does God know that I'm going through this trial? Maybe he's not aware of it. You know, or, or better than that, you know, maybe I miss God's will somewhere along the line, and God is not going to help me because I'm not in God's will. And I saw people struggle with this in this church that I was in. I'm not going to name them. They're nice, good Christian people. They're better Christians than me sometimes. But at this point, I think this teaching is hurtful. That's why I'm telling it to you, because it will cause you to be anxious, and the Bible does not require it. Okay? And so I saw young men really fret over the fact, I've got to find the woman to marry that God has for me. Well, God has a will about your marriage. He says, marry a Christian. That's all he says. That's the only qualification that you have to know from the Word of God. Now, he expects you to exercise a little bit of wisdom. Don't go out and just marry a woman just because she's a Christian. But, you know, ask for godly wisdom to guide you. But, you know, there may be several choices out there, and it's an area of freedom. Uh, what job should I take? It's the same sort of thing. You may have several options, and you say, well, which one would God have me to take? Well, he says, do the one where you can have an honest day's work. Other than that, it doesn't matter. It's an area of freedom. You don't have to know which one God has got selected for you. Now, he's got one selected, but you don't have to know what it is. And the reason for that is that God does not require us to know his secret plan. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And that means we only have to know before the Lord what the Bible reveals. Okay? And then we ask for a little godly wisdom to understand how to apply it in our lives. But then everything else is an area of freedom, and we don't know, we don't have to know God's secret plan. And you know how I know that? Because that's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Let me tell it to you if you're not familiar with it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so one of the ways to eliminate anxiety is not to believe things that the Bible does not require. That just puts added pressure on you. Now, if you're living in flagrant sin, now I'm not talking about, well, gee, I sin every day. You know, maybe God is displeased with me. That is the normal Christian life. Now, if you're living with your girlfriend or you stole all the money down where you work, okay, that's flagrant sin. You ought to think you're not in the will of God under that. 
But if you're going through the normal warm and, well, wharf and whoop of the Christian life, you're going to sin, and you may sin many times every day. Let me tell you, I know that from firsthand experience. Okay, Now, I've gotten better. I'm not as great a sinner as I once was, but I'm still a redeemed sinner. And I expect that all of you are. And there's an ambiguity in the Christian life where you wonder, well, am I a hypocrite because I sin you know, as much as I do? Or am I walking in darkness? Am I, am I in the flesh? No, to be in the flesh or to walk in darkness means that there's no resistance in your life to sin. The true believer, he sins just like the unbeliever, maybe not quite as flagrantly as he does, but he repents of that sin. He resists that sin. He may not be able or she may not be able to overcome it, but that's the difference between walking in darkness and walking in light or walking in fellowship with God as opposed to not walking in fellowship with God. So God knows every detail of our lives because the Bible tells us that he is all-knowing and he has no difficulty controlling all of the events because he is all-powerful. So all of your and my affairs are all in his plan. So whatever we go through, we need to know beforehand there hadn't been a mistake and I'm not out of the will of God. What I'm experiencing is the will of God regardless of how unpleasant that it is. Well, as I said, we know that God controls all of our lives for good, and this is why all of our prayers and supplications should be made with thanksgiving because we should acknowledge his good and wise control of our lives. You know, back uh, in 2000, one of the hurricanes that went through Houston a few years ago, I think it was Hurricane Harvey in 2017, there was a lady on Christian radio station, bless her heart, I know that she meant well, uh, I'm not doubting that she's a Christian or anything, but she was giving out what I thought was some really poor advice to people. And she uh, was trying to console everybody about the hurricane, if people were adversely affected about the hurricane. But she was assuring everybody that this hurricane was not God's fault. Well, really? Why isn't it God's fault? Didn't God control it? Well, if you say God's controlling, that means he's not all-powerful. Well, the Bible insists that God is all-powerful. Well, maybe he didn't know about it. Well, sure he knew about it. God knows all things. And, you know, uh, if he didn't cause it, couldn't he stop it? And so my point is, why is that comforting to anybody? It's not comforting to say that God didn't cause it. That means there's something there out of God's control. And so it's better to say God absolutely controlled it. What happened is exactly what God wanted to happen. Now, we don't know what God's purpose was for the things that happened. He probably had many different purposes. You know, somebody said, well, that was the judgment of God. Well, it might have been in some cases. In some cases, it may be his sanctifying influence on his people. Some of you had a very bad experience. Uh, I know Vance and Christy Burns' house flooded during that time. The Wakeland's house Flooded. You know, I don't think that was judgment on them. That was a sanctifying influence on him. And, and he may have had more purposes than that. We don't know what all of his purposes were. You know, I've only seen in my own life, it seems like God has multiple purposes sometimes for what me and my family go through. And I think that's true in everybody else's life. So he controls the lives of his people. 
Just like the Lord Jesus said about the sparrows in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And so if the Lord controls the sparrows' lives who are of lesser value to him than we are, we know that he certainly controls all of our lives as well. And this is how we restrain anxiety, point number two. So we let our reasonableness be made known. Okay, point number two, don't be anxious. This is the way, part of the way that we do this. And then in verse 7, he refers to the third thing on my list, which is the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard the Philippians' hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God is that inner tranquility that God possesses in his nature, which he grants to those who trust in him. If we do, then the inner strife and conflict with others or worry about our circumstances will come to an end. And this peace passes all understanding because either it is so marvelous that no human intellect can completely comprehend its worth, or it may mean that God's peace is able to accomplish far better results, and it certainly can, than we could ever do by our own wisdom and skill. And when Paul says the word, uh, guard our hearts and minds, it would have reminded the Philippians that there was a Roman garrison in the city of Philippi. They were there to guard the city, to protect it from the enemies that were without. And so, like them, God's peace is like a squad of soldiers which define, uh, defend our thoughts and our emotions, protecting us from the assaults of the enemy, that is, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this peace is reserved for those who are in Christ Jesus. That expression means that we are in union with Christ, and we become in union with Christ when we come to salvation, exercising faith in the Lord Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And it is for those who are the Lord Jesus' followers and not available to any who are not Christians. And so in this way, we obtain the third thing that I mentioned on my list. We obtain peace. And then in verse 8 through 9, Paul concludes with one long sentence in the original scriptures, uh, which gives guidance out of how one is not to be anxious but to be at peace. He says in verses 8 and 9, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So we are to reflect upon the true, the honorable, the just, the pure, the lovely, and the commendable. Reflecting upon these things is meditating upon these things. And so this is the fourth thing on my list. We are to meditate upon these good things. And all of these virtues, uh, wait a minute, let me back up. Whatever is excellent, he says, refers to the virtue in any sphere of activity and the prestige which such virtue acquires, and whatever is worthy of praise concerns anything which calls down the approval of God. And so all of these virtues may be summed up by what is excellent and what is worthy of praise. Now, we might think what is excellent is robbing banks and getting away with millions of dollars, but it sure ain't. Worthy of praise, see? So not by God's estimation anyway. So it should be both of those things. 
And so Paul says that we are to think about these things, and it makes good sense. If we focus on the excellent and the praiseworthy in our thinking, then we will be less likely to be anxious and have a lack of peace. And then in verse 9, Paul calls them to follow his example, to practice the things that Paul has demonstrated to them in their presence. They've learned from him. And the promises that, and he promises that the God of peace will be with them. And so Paul gives the Philippians and us uh, guidance in these five verses concerning our attitudes and our thought life and the attitude that we want other people to have towards us. And it's four qualities. We're to make known our reasonableness. We're to restrain our anxiety. We're to obtain peace. And we're to meditate upon the excellent and praiseworthy. And I don't know about you, but with my lifelong uh, tendency to be a worrier, I can't claim that I have ever been particularly good about these things. And I suspect that we all, because I hear other people make comments about things that they're concerned about and so on and so forth, but the Lord tells us to do these things, and it's really for our benefit to do so because it will give us peace. And the Lord wants his people to have joy, to have peace in life, to enjoy the good things that he has given to us. And so let's you and me give some focused effort to doing what he says in these verses. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are concerned about the well-being of your people. We thank you, Father, for this simple, straightforward, practical teaching from your word. Uh, I admit, Father, that I have difficulty doing these things, and perhaps there are others here that are, are like-minded with me. Please help all of us, Father. Please grant us the power that we might be able to focus on what you teach and help us to implement the practice so that we may be more pleasing in your sight in this way. And we pray, Father, that you draw us a little more closely to yourself as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper this evening.